0: everyone. I'd like to introduce you to someone. This is Amber and she's nine weeks old. That's all I've got to say. The end of the meeting. (laughs) I'm doing something else this morning. She's just about ready for a feed but um, when I was looking at her I'm thinking about what Mike asked me when I came this morning. He said, what is it in one sentence that you want to say? Which is a a great technique to summarize exactly what you want to kind of communicate. And it was this. So we're going to cut to the end. Doesn't mean you're not going to have to listen to me for 45 minutes. But anyway, there we go. And the end is this. Caring for one another is part of the DNA of the church. there we go. The title is Learning to Grow. And if you look in the Bible, it often in this section, it's about the choosing of the seven. But it's actually about learning to care for each other. So if little Amber here, who is desperate now for mummy, was in need, what would you do? What would you do for this little one? you'd care for her. You wouldn't be saying, I wonder why she's not caring for me. I wonder why nobody's meeting my needs. You'd be saying, what can I do to help that person? And the problem is, somewhere between here and here, we start getting things the wrong way around we somehow seem to manage to have um, developed the skill of suspending what we kind of feel we know we should do to being more focused often on what we want. She is so good, by the way. So I'm going to cut while I'm ahead here and give her back to the most important person. And I wasn't planning on doing that until I saw her just in James's arms this morning and thought, it is so true that that's kind of where we end up sometimes. It is in that sense of we do have needs, we all have needs. But very often, our needs can be met as we reach out to other people. Um, And the passage this morning, uh, if we could just have it up, Nicky, that would be great, is in many ways, uh, as we've been looking at a few really, and I kind of hesitate to say this when you're talking about the Bible, which is powerful and is the mighty word of God, but actually, it's a fairly routine sort of passage. And I bet when you've read through the book of Acts individually, um, over the years, you might have just thought, oh, that's interesting, but I'm really more interested in what happens in the next chapter with Stephen because that's much more shocking and exciting and and uh, impactful. Um, and it's a kind of narrative story, really, about a snapshot of what was going on in the early church. And Luke has been brilliant at doing this in the in, in the book of Acts, about just giving us snapshots of early church life intermingled with incredible stories of power and the, the the dynamic coming of the kingdom of God to humanity to, uh, at Pentecost. But again, we're not delving here into massively complicated theological truth. We're not trying to Disentangle what Paul, some of what Paul was saying in the book of Romans, perhaps, or we're not trying to juggle with some of the cultural jarrings of of some of the Old Testament stories and trying to work out how that fits and how we feed ourselves from those. It's pretty straightforward, but interesting that Luke decided to include it. So let's just read this passage first, seven verses. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing. The Hellenistic Jews among them, we'll come to that in a second, don't worry, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples and said, "'It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. "'Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom.'" We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention and prayer to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Interestingly here, so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests, interestingly, became obedient to the faith. So why do you think Luke included this? Of all of the literature, all of the information, all of the research that you will have had to hand, you know what it's like, we, we talked about writing essays last time I was here, wasn't I? you you If you are very conscientious, you'll have a whole amount of work and notes and you distill it down to your essay length. If you're not quite so conscientious, you find two or three really good articles and you draw from them. I don't think Luke was that type. He was clearly conscientious. And he chose to include this at the same time as including things like the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter's first sermon, the growth of the church, the rather shocking... um, Story of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, which we covered a a couple of weeks ago. Uh, But he also decided to include this element. Now, I'm pretty sure uh, quite a lot of it has to do with the seven who were chosen and the role that, particularly, Stephen and Philip were going to play, uh, because they're both mentioned Stephen in the next chapter, Philip in the chapter after that, and a bit later on as well, actually. but also he was highlighting an issue here uh, within the church. And we've talked before as well, haven't we, about how varied the church was, just like we are in many ways. It was made up of very diverse groups, educated people, people who were less or non-educated, people who were rich, people who were poor, families, individuals, Hebrew uh, Hebrew Jews, Greek Jews, and people who were probably not from a Jewish background at all, but who'd responded to the word of God, uh, firstly at Peter's uh, first sermon, but also all the teaching and the preaching of the apostles um, since that point. And we also know that caring for each other was an absolute hallmark of the early church. We've covered that on two occasions already. Firstly, uh, there's a section after Peter's uh, first preach, and and then there's a section in chapter 4, which we covered last time I was speaking about, uh, they had their possession, you know, nothing, nobody had any want. They came, they gave to the disciples, they developed a fund, which the disciples, administ- uh, the apostles administered, which we'll come on to in a second, so that there was no need amongst the people. So, somehow, right at the very heart of receiving faith, receiving Jesus, coming into Christ, there was an, a, a something in their hearts that said, We now need to care for one another. And if you remember, Jesus said way back, it's by your love that people will know that you're my disciples. The way in which we care for one another, look after one another, look out for one another is not just a hallmark of how we are are together as a family. It is a sign to those outside the kingdom that Jesus is at work in our hearts, not as a A random collection of individuals who come together for bits and bobs from time to time. But people who are joined together in heart and in spirit. In many ways, we would call that, if you want a modern phrase for that now, it would be something like social justice. It would be about how we look after one another. How we address the needs of those who are in need. So that uh, nobody goes without what they require and what they need. And, you know, we talk about the early church, and anybody who's, who's read up on church history or has done a, any studying or a degree around theology or whatever it might be, the early church period is often um, not very early. In fact, it, it, it goes up to about 450 AD. I mean, they, that kind of period of, of church history. So if we, if we talked about the later church being where we are, it would have started when Elizabeth I was on the throne at the end of the the 16th century. That's a long time, isn't it? It's a long period of time when we talk about the early church. But it's interesting that um, I was reminded uh, to then go and re-find um, some of the stories about how the way in which the church cared for each other, and not only each other, but those outside, was remarkable, not only just to uh, Christians writing histories at the time, but non-Christians who are writing histories of the time. And it's also just thinking, linking to our current situation. The early church, as in the first two or three hundred years, experienced quite a number of very, very serious pandemic outbreaks. uh, Not of viral infections like we have now, but um, uh, dare I say much more serious in the sense that some of them were around uh, smallpox, some of them were around Ebola and some of them went on for 10 years, and literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were dying. But interestingly, I came across two accounts one from Dionysius, who was a historian at the time, said this Most of our brothers, our brother Christians, showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their deaths to themselves and died in their stead. And Eusebius, who's another famous historian at the time, said this, For they alone, talking about Christians here, in the middle of such ills showed their sympathy and humility by their deeds. Every day some continued caring for and burying the dead, for there were multitudes who had no one to care for them. Others collected in one place those who were afflicted by the famine throughout the entire city, gave bread to them all, so that they became reported. Sorry, so that the thing became reported abroad among all men, and they glorified the God of the Christians. It's quite powerful, isn't it? When you think about what's actually said. Thinking back, history is funny, isn't it? He kind of almost. We read it and we think about it as if it's not quite us, it, you know. But they were us then. It was people like you and me then doing that. They were no different. So being a Christian in the early church was totally and utterly bound up with what we would today call a duty of care for one another, but not a duty as in, oh, I must do it, a deep seated desire. To love and care for each other. So that's the background to four very quick questions we're going to ask about this passage. What was the problem that was in the church? Uh, what was the problem that Luke is outlining here? And frankly, it's, it's it's pretty straightforward. What was the solution? What was the impact? And what should we be doing about it today? So very quickly, what's the problem? I don't know whether this was the first inverted commas problem that the early church had to deal with. I don't know whether or not there were other things. I don't know whether little petty squabbles or people falling out. I bet there were. Do you know what? Because they're the same as us then. No different. They weren't all super saints. They didn't somehow have a different version of coming into Jesus that we did. They came into Jesus with all of their issues, all of their complications, all of the problems, all of the challenges, just like just like us. But it would appear, if you look at verse one here, that there was a degree of favoritism taking place within the church at the time. And it was between two Jewish groups. And if you did a study on widows in the New Testament, you will see widows were often people who were uh, most at risk of being disadvantaged because they had, in that society, no one else to care for them. Um, or to look out for them. So looking after widows was uh, kind of priority number one um, for for the early church. But obviously the widows came from all sorts of different backgrounds, and they were highlighting two here. And so we'll go in reverse order. First of all, Hebrew Jews were those who essentially had been born and brought up within Judea and or Jerusalem, primarily Jerusalem, but also in the land around they had not gone anywhere else. They spoke, their native tongue was Aramaic. It was firmly uh, based in the Middle East and the promised land, essentially the promised kingdom of David and Judah. So they were the Hebrew Jews. The Hellenistic Jews or the Greek Jews, that means the same thing, Hellenistic and Greek means the same thing, um, were, were Jewish families who'd been dispersed outside of Israel and the Jewish people have, as you well know, have had a history of being dispersed all over the place at lots of different times. So even going back to the early exiles in Babylon and you know, back in 721 BC, you know, 800 years before this and 586 when the, um, uh, the southern kingdom was exiled, there was a history of, of Jewish families and people being dispersed all over um, the known world at the time. And that continued... And what we find here is that either, and and these Hellenistic Jews, these Greek Jews were called that because they spoke Greek, essentially. Their native tongue was Greece. They lived in a different culture, a a Greek, what we would probably today call a more Western culture in comparison to a Hebrew culture within Jerusalem. They spoke a different language. Culturally, they've been brought up in a different uh, setting. Um, but many of them had come back either to Jerusalem to settle, because that's where essentially you know most Jews would want to gravitate towards, back to the homeland, to the promised, uh, the, the city of God. Um, and some might have gone back for Pentecost. It was a festival time. It's like Glastonbury, but even you know bigger um, and with a different focus, obviously. Um, and it might just be that some of them had gone back for that. And heard Peter's sermon and felt, we want to stay here. And it ended up staying, relocating back to Jerusalem. So these two two camps, they were the two groups of people. And both of those sets of people had widows um, associated with either the Hebrew Jews or the Greek Jews. And what had happened was, in the daily distribution of food, the Hebrew Jewish widows... Were, or at least, the, should I say, the Greek Jewish widows felt that the Hebrew Jewish widows were getting more. They were getting preferential treatment. They were getting, I don't know, first dibs or more or whatever. Luke doesn't go in because interestingly, Luke doesn't describe the issue much more than just a simple description. He's much more interested in the solution, not why are we where we are. We love that, don't we? Why are we where we are? We need to understand why we've got here. Luke's not interested in that one little bit. He's just saying this is a problem I'm more interested in how we move on from here and what the solution is. What is God saying to us to move us from here rather than endlessly looking at the issues that we're perhaps facing? So perhaps just a little lesson to us all there. So, and, and he doesn't therefore say why it was that the Hebrew widows were getting more than the Greek uh, widows, we don't know. It may just be that... Um, It was the apostles doing it. All the apostles pretty much were were Hebrews. They were the ones who were in charge of the pot of money. We found that out, if you remember, in Acts chapter 4, the end of Acts chapter 4. They will have spoken the same language as the Hebrew um, widows, etc. And it might just be, I don't get the impression it was on purpose. It was just, it probably just evolved a little bit like that. But there was a problem And why was that then a problem? It was a problem because, let's go back to the start, loving and caring for one another is part of the DNA of the church. So if that's not working effectively within the family of God, if it's not being displayed in a way which was not just important for the family, but was incredibly powerful as a presentation of what the kingdom of God looks like to those outside that family, then there's a, it's not just a practical organizational problem. it's a spiritual. it becomes a spiritual problem at that point. And that sense of injustice could have caused division, and we just know how crippling division is in terms of the blessing of God. Plenty of examples in the Bible where there's division, there's friction and problem, and where there's uh, togetherness and unity, the blessing of God flows. So verse 2, as I said uh, earlier on, it was the apostles that were the administrators of the common fund. Uh, And they probably, when they started off as what was being described in Acts chapter 4, it was probably just about manageable. Although if 3,000 were added to the number on the first day, I suspect there might have been quite a lot of widows to be helping right from the get-go. But we don't know how long after this you know, what Luke is describing here. We don't know how long after that it took, you know, it was from that first Pentecost speech, but we know that it had become an increasing problem. And what the apostles had found themselves doing, perhaps instead of being out preaching, leading the church, they got increasingly engaged in administering the the help fund. Now, for many years in, in Kings, we've had something called the Elders' Help Fund. We don't spend hours and hours and hours and hours every single day agonizing about what to do with it uh, because we live in a different situation. I'll come on to that in a minute or two. But they'd obviously their time had somehow, uh, perhaps it was insidious, uh, as in it just crept up on them. They just kept doing it, kept doing it. The task got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Just, it's an important task. We need to get this right. And all of a sudden, when they were called to be doing this, they were getting involved with this, which had become that, which had become that, and that, and that, and that, and that, and that, and then it become this. And this task here had started to block out what God had actually called them to do. This, this story is not about hierarchy. This story is about calling. The story isn't about saying, what is a more visible and, and posh job? <laughs> What is more, what's going to give me more notoriety if I'm doing X, Y, or Z? It's about saying, what has God given to me? Because that's what I need to do. And I need to be careful not to let a whole lot of other things come in. And I, I think also it's, I wouldn't make the assumption personally, I might be completely wrong, it's just me thinking. If there were 12 disciples, do you know, some of them might have quite liked it. Some might be thinking, I can't be bothered with this. I want to be back to this. And I've got to think about, you know, loaves of bread again. But some of them might have said, you know, I quite like this. You know, I feel like, you know, who knows? So for some of the the apostles, it might have been, "This is what a relief, desperate to get back to what I need to do. And others perhaps, when the point came to them having to let go of that responsibility, they might have felt, oh, I don't know whether I want to do that. I don't know, don't know whether I, I really want to let go. So, what was the solution, second question? Interestingly, the apostles didn't make the decision. Now, there you go. We can have a chat about that, can't we? So, the eldership of the church at the time, which was quite large, said, we're not making the choice. Could you just sort it out amongst yourselves, please, and let us know what you come up with? I have no idea how they might have done that. If there were three, four, or 5,000 people what are they going to do? How are they going to come to that decision? Don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. All the apostle says we want people who are wise, full of the Holy Spirit and have wisdom. That's all. That's the only job description. Personal specification, full of the Spirit and wise. That's all. Don't need to worry about anything else. Don't need to pore over it too much. Just come up with seven people. And amazingly, they did. Don't know how. Don't know how long it took, but they did. And if you read anything into the names of these seven, they were probably more on the Hellenistic rather than the Jewish side. So the very people who felt most disadvantaged were the people who were disproportionately chosen to actually sort the problem out. Interesting, isn't it? Think, like, Oh, no, we need this. We need, you know, we need a proper societal representation in these seven people. We need to make sure that it all kind of balances and if we ever inspected on this decision. We've got our paperwork sorted out. No, none of that. There's a problem. Who are the best people to do it? And so they presented them to the, uh, uh, the apostles and the apostles laid hands on them and they got back to the, the work that they were supposed to do. And just in the avoidance of any doubt, the seven they chose, and we mentioned Stephen and Philip earlier on, were incredibly um, mature, full of gifting people. In fact, if you then read the next chapter, which I'm sure you're aware, it's the story of Stephen. Don't know how long, I hope, it wasn't the next day because Stephen would have had no chance because he dies. Sorry, spoiler alert. um, Pretty quickly at the end of chapter 7. So, obviously, there was some time between chapter 6 and chapter 7. But Stephen, who had been chosen to attend to the needs of the widows in the church, stood and prophetically declaimed the glory of God to the Jewish council, was stoned with Saul watching and giving his approval. But somehow, something in what happened there spoke deep into Saul's heart. Stephen was critically important in actually the rest of the whole of the book of Acts and the growth of the church in that particular area. And Philip, as you know, he, you know, he, was, uh, he, he preached uh, to the Ethiopian eunuch and baptized him, was credited as being the founder of the Ethiopian church. Therefore, by definition, probably what we would call an apostle. Transported from one place to another in the blink of an eye and had four daughters who prophesied. So he, he had a much longer life than Stephen did. But the quality and the caliber of the people that were chosen are people who had a significant impact on the way the kingdom of God then spread beyond that time. So what was the impact? The impact we see at the end there is that the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And I don't really need to say anything else about that. It's fairly self-evident, isn't it? Something that happened caused a release of the power and the influence of the kingdom of God. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, we love a strategy, don't we? Lots of people love a strategy. And it would be easy to think, you know, you get everything balanced neat and tidy and organized, right people. That's the strategy. The strategy for the growth, massive expansion, is making sure everybody's needs are met and we've got everybody doing. No, actually, do you know what? That's not the point because they were also devoting themselves to prayer, devoting themselves to the word. They were also devoting themselves to worship. They were also devoting themselves to looking after the needs of those inside and outside the church. It wasn't just because the church managed to organize seven people in the right slots that all of a sudden, bang, there was a massive expansion of the kingdom of God. That, that's not, it's not a one plus one equals two situation. It's much more, much broader than that. There were people in love with Jesus to the point that they wanted just to tell people about him. But in that process, the issue about slight disunity within the church can be a powerful inhibitor to the way God works for us because we're thinking about the wrong things easy to do, and that's the challenge for us today. So lastly, what does this passage say to us? You know, the New Testament is full of passages about the family being a body, isn't it? Dependent on and contributing to the effect, effective functioning of the whole. And if, if it was a, a, to use a sporting analogy, we're not a whole load of golfers sat here. We're a whole load of rugby players, we're not individuals thrashing a ball around, you know, swathes of green grass, making our own decisions, being completely uh, responsible for everything we do. It doesn't matter what, where, where rugby plays. I chose rugby for, as an example. I don't knock don't golf, it's great, I love it. But, you know, nobody comes off the rugby pitch looking as clean as they did when they went on it. Why is that? because there's contact with the earth and there's contact with each other. That's what we are. Now, you might not have ever thought about yourself as a rugby player, um, but that's kind of just what I felt. It's not an individual sport. It's a group sport. It's something that we work together. The apostles got back to doing what they should be doing. And it's uh, perhaps, you know, I guess one of the issues may be for us that we would rather like to be doing something someone else is doing. <laughs> or if I really want to do that, for a whole host of reasons, they're supposed to say, what is it that God wants me to do? And we can look to other people and say, I wish I was more like that. And in a way, if they are demonstrating excellent character and you know, Christ-like uh, personality, then that's fine. That's a good thing to aspire to. You know, Steve is an amazing pla- piano player. I mean, he's an amazing bloke, but I'm generally... He's a better piano player than he is a bloke, but there you go. <laughs> Only joking. I'd love to play the piano like Steve. But I never will. Unless I break his fingers. <laughs> do something treacherous. I'd <sighs> oh, well or at least super, super glue them together. I don't have to break them, do I? We just have to have a skin graft rather than proper reconstructive surgery and all that kind of stuff. One, because he's more talented than I am. And two, because he practices. Now, I could practice the same amount as Steve does. I could perhaps even try and make up all the years, except these arthritic joints now would, would kill me probably. And I still would not be as good as he is. So the more I start thinking, I wish I was as good as he was at that, the less time I'm thinking about what can I do? What's my gift? What am I good at? What's God called me to do? And I think that's the biggest, actually the biggest kind of um, challenge and encouragement actually to us this morning. As I said, lots of passages in the Bible that talk about the family being a body. And I just want to read this from Romans. This is one of them. Romans uh, chapter 12, uh, verses 3 to 8. Who's that? <laughs> Thanks, Julia. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Don't worry. Just say hello from us, would you, while you're belongs to all of the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. And if it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. The list could go on and on and on, couldn't it? if it's to lead a small group, if it's volunteering at the centre, if it's being part of the worship team, if it's inputting into the kids and youth work, if it's on the stewarding rotor. Do you know what? It might be a bit of a shock for you to know that you're not going to be the best in the world at anything. you can be the best you in the kingdom of God. You can possibly be. And that's worth far, far more. So as I said, this is not, it's not a a passage that is, you're not digging deep into theological background and terms and all the rest of it. It's just a simple story, a narrative, a story about an event that happened and yet can speak so clearly to us today. So, Loving and caring for one another was part of the DNA of the church then. It's still part of the church now, and the way we do that is being effectively working out what God has given us to do. So I just felt we're going to leave it there. We're going to sing a final song, um, and just to give you a chance to reflect on that. Just have and the questions I guess is: Have you moved? Have you lost a bit of that? Have you moved away a little bit from? Um, what you really feel God has called you to do? Have you moved away? Have you entered into a bit, oh, it's just, oh, I don't know what about this. I'd like to do what they do, etc. Do you just need to rein yourself back a little bit on some of that? And if we do, who knows what God will do? But what he will do is we'll have greater opportunity to work through us because we're settled in who we are and what God has called us to do. And what God has called us to be—he with kings. So let's just as, let's stand as a band leaders in our final song.